It's hope. It's hope. We need hope. And the series that we've been doing out of First Thessalonians is all about hope because here's a church that is being born into persecution. And for this church, it means that they are on a journey of discovering not only who Jesus is, but what the cost to their lives is by being followers of Jesus. Uh, this morning, we're going to look more particularly at this question of resistance, how they, the church, faced resistance from the community around them, the religious community, as much as the secular community. And they became stronger and stronger and stronger. So let me pray as we open up the scriptures together. Father, our hope this morning is that we can be captivated again by this wonderful story of the birth of the church, the church in Thessalonica. We know Greece. And uh, there they, the church just became an inspiration to so many others because in the dire circumstances of persecution, they would stood that and became strong and uh, be able to, were able to reflect your goodness into the community. So Lord, I pray that we can take from that this morning and learn as your spirit guides us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as I've said in the last couple of weeks, that uh, this church was only three to four weeks uh, into its existence when Paul, the father of this church, had to leave because he was run out of town. He was persecuted. And that meant that he had to get out of town to save his own life. And so it's very hard to find a comparison as to how vulnerable or fragile this, this church was. But maybe in this little illustration, we can see something I think of what the church would have been experiencing from its point of birth. Now, when people become Christians, they, their immediate response is that they get baptized. And uh, from that moment on, they're baptized into the church, they're baptized into Christ, and they become part of this body. But it takes a while for a Christian to find their feet. And so we see in this illustration here of a, a little fawn finding, finding its feet after having been only newly born. Now we know that this little baby here is only probably minutes old. But for a church to be only three or four weeks old is pretty much in that same category, isn't it? When we think about how Paul himself would have been looking to, to get this church literally on its feet, to have it established in baptism, to understand the word of God, to understand the person of Jesus, to understand that Christ had come to fulfill all of these uh, wonderful expectations and prophecies. And finally, it gets on its feet. Hey, look at that. Oh, isn't that gorgeous? So you can see why I use this illustration, because Paul talks about wanting to be a mother to the church. And last week we looked at how he said, I literally want to breastfeed this church. And he says, I want to be a father to the church. I want to be able to take it on a journey and develop its strength. Paul says, For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Now, when we read these verses and we talk about the Word of God, we actually have to get something pretty cleared away in our mind. The understanding, of course, is that um, we have to take a, a picture of where we're at in history. Because when we read verses that talk about the Word of God, we, we assume that Paul was talking about the Bible. Right? 
Of course, in the day, in Paul's day, in Jesus' day, the Bible only consisted of the Old Testament writings. Okay, so the New Testament writings weren't put together completely for around about another 200, 250 years. Some would say even 300 years after the time of Christ. So that's between, in our terms, that's about between now and when Captain Cook discovered New Zealand. Okay, so let's get this perspective right. So what Paul is talking about when he's talking about the word of God that was planted in you, he's talking about the person of Jesus. See, Jesus is the ultimate word. Jesus is God's final word, his true word. And he was sent from heaven. Remember that God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God sent his only son into the world. And, it, and here Paul is referring to this word of God that's planted deeply within you. And that is what is transforming you. That is what is changing you. The person of Christ in you is changing you. Okay? Uh, it can't be the New Testament scriptures as we understand it. Of course, the reference to the Old Testament highlights the fact that this Messiah, Jesus, was to come. And so Paul argued that point with the Jews in the synagogues. And that's how the Old Testament scriptures came to reveal Jesus. But the word of God planted within you was the person of Christ. And that was bringing transformation. The Holy Spirit working in someone's life is going to bring transformation. Just in the earlier service here today, I prayed with a, a young woman who, um, who's from overseas, and she's saying, I keep coming to this church, and I, and I cry all the time. And I'm like, sorry, my preaching's that bad, but... Um, <laughs> No, what she was looking for was an answer of what God is doing in her life. And so, you know, we led her to Christ and she accepted what God was already doing in her life, that seed planted within her. And that's what happens to, to all of us. And so Paul is referring to this, this word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Remember John's gospel, how it it opens up with these famous words that say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Talking about Jesus, okay? Talking about Jesus. Uh, in, a, in a sort of a strange way, I could use this illustration. Um, being sick with sin, Jesus is like the antibiotic. Jesus is like the penicillin that's put into your veins that brings you health and wholeness, allows you to be born again if you're dying. Okay, so it's this word that is working within you at work in those who believe. And Paul is referencing to this because he knows that the transformation that is going on in the believers of this Thessalonian church has to continue to grow strength into their bones, strength into their bodies, strength into their mind and their spirit because they're being persecuted. They're being persecuted. And so if you take that image that I had up there earlier on of a little, little fawn, and you think of persecution on a, something like a little fawn, that seems so unfair, doesn't it? That anybody would hurt or harm that little fawn. Well, the church was just like that. And that's why Paul was saying, I just so long to nurture you, to hold you to my breast and to feed you and comfort you. Why? Because the image that he carried in his, of the church was one that was such childlike that he needed to, and he wanted to be there for them. So Paul says, for you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displeased God and are hostile to everyone. Hostile to everyone. So here Paul is saying, look, um, 
it's a strange sort of compliment, really. He's saying, you're becoming imitators of the other churches. He's saying, look, because of the word planted in you, now people around you are responding to you in the same fashion that some of the other churches in other provinces responded. Okay, so it's sort of a, a strange way of saying you're doing a good job because you're getting persecuted, just like the other churches. And so here Paul is encouraging his church by saying, you're not alone. You are being persecuted, yes, but that is a positive thing because you're separated out as people who are serving the Lord. Now, in New Zealand today, in the Western world, um, we suffer persecution, but it's a lot more along the lines of uh, intolerance. It's a lot more along the lines of indifference, of being ignored, disregarded, maybe mocked at times. But the main media does everything it can to eliminate anything of any form of religion out of that that form of media, you know, essentially saying we're a secular nation, we're not going to touch on Christian things or religious things. And that carries itself over into the schools, into workplaces, where we will be um, looked upon quizzically, shall I say, for being people who go to church, have a faith, believe in God. And yet 20% of New Zealanders will go to church in any one month. It's strange how strongly the secular humanism is holding our country uh, to ransom, really, for its beliefs. So here we find Paul trying to encourage this young church, saying persecution is normal. He goes on to say, uh, oh, sorry, I'll start back in the other sentence. Down the bottom there, they displease God and are hostile to everyone who, (laughs) who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. And so Paul is not afraid to say that there is a judgment for those who are, going, who, are, who are opposing the church, particularly when this group of people were those who proclaimed loudly that they were expecting the Messiah to come. When he did come in the person of Jesus, they rejected him. Now, we in the West, of course, are under a level of intolerance from secular society. But in the East, in China in particular, this last two years, persecution has ramped up to a whole new level. And um, this has taken place right under the eyes of other nations. And it's turning the church in China upside down. But at the same time, the church still remains and it's still getting stronger. So I've got a little video here, just a few minutes long, uh, from ITV that talks about the church in China and what's happening there at the moment. In China, if you choose to worship God, you are accepting you will be watched by the police. The church and these growing congregations have been accused of undermining devotion to the Communist Party, with President Xi warning they could be a conduit for foreign infiltration. As the Sunday morning service got underway at the Early Rain Presbyterian Church, two uniformed officers arrived to check on the congregation. They focused on the overspill rooms, which are a reflection of how much this gathering in Chengdu has grown. More and more Chinese people are turning to Christianity, despite a government crackdown. New laws have been introduced which give the state greater control over religious meetings. Their message, 
and their members. Despite the risks, Pastor Wang Yi continues to use his sermons to condemn the regulations. We pray, God, please let us be prepared to face persecution when it happens. In the past year, a number of church leaders have been arrested, and Pastor Wang fears he could be next. I need to prepare my brothers and sisters for possible persecution. They might be arrested soon. This church might be closed. Someone might lose their job because of their belief. Some who work for the government might be investigated for their participation in the church. In January, officials in Shangxi province ordered the Golden Lamstad Church to be demolished. A building permit violation was used as justification for blowing it up. Hundreds of churches have been destroyed or closed and thousands of others have had their crosses forcefully removed. There is intentionally nothing marking out the entrance to the early rain Presbyterian church. Its congregation meets on the 23rd floor of this high rise in central Chengdu. Freedom of religion may be guaranteed in China's constitution, but it's one of thousands of house churches forced to hide from sight by a communist party that views Christianity as a threat. But still, every week more Christians are being baptized. We spoke to some of the newest members of the congregation, including Yang Yang, whose family object to the church. Chinese families are influenced mostly by traditional culture and object to Christian belief. So it's very difficult for me at home. They described finding a trust in God that they no longer have in the government. I do believe no matter how much they prosecute Christianity and churches in China, we will grow bigger. Of course we are afraid, but since we chose the church, we are willing to go ahead no matter how difficult it is. But as he closed the National People's Congress today, the president declared only socialism can lead to China's national rejuvenation. Having cemented his power, Xi Jinping appears determined to ensure his people pledge an allegiance only to the Communist Party. Debbie Edward, News at 10, Chengdu. So that's a fascinating little insight, isn't it, to what's happening in China. Um, one of the other things that is happening in the last, has happened in the last 18 months has been a, um, a whole system of regulation <clears throat> called social credit whereby a person is given a certain amount of points. And uh, depending on what they do for a job or whether they are being uh, naughty in some form, that credit rises or falls. And it's all tied in with social media, the ability to be able to monitor somebody's uh, habits on, on what they read, what they purchase, as well as where they go. And so when you have a <clears throat> diminished social credit rating, you might find that you can't buy a plane ticket or you can't get on a train or you can't hire a taxi. And so you then have to put yourself in a position where you serve the state in other ways to build up some credit so that these doors open for you again. And so this is all happening right now. It's all being introduced in a way that is bringing uh, real control over the congregation, uh, sorry, over the, uh, the, the, the nation. Um, and, and because of the ability of computers these days to define the difference between people in so many different ways, uh, this is a, a subtle way in which the state controls the people. Yeah? 
So we'll be introducing it here um, probably after Easter. No, it's a, it's a real serious thing, and um, it's the way in which, sadly, so much of the world is moving and putting people under pressure by being observed in everything they do and say and, and ultimately think. Yeah. In uh, the Uyghur country in China, which is up in the northwestern part of China, it's traditionally been um, a, a strong Muslim area. Well, some figures suggest that over a million Muslims have been put into a detention centre or detention centres around China for re-education purposes. So it's not just Christianity, it's all religions that are being uh, persecuted at the moment. So it's a really difficult time. We'll, we'll pray for them at the end of our service today. But let's go back to, to what Paul was talking to the, uh, the Thessalonians about in this whole context of persecution. He says, but brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did, again and again, but Satan blocked our way. Now, Paul is very particular about using uh, this name, Satan. Whenever you find him talking about it, he'll be referencing something particular that has happened to him. And here he is describing how Satan blocked his way, which raises a, a bigger question for us about how it is that we ourselves can discern the difference between God leading and Satan blocking. Does it make sense? Because there are things that you don't do because God has suggested you don't do, or you don't go somewhere, or you don't do something. And it can be led, you can be led in such a way that is perfectly uh, acceptable with the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life. But then there are times when you stand against powers and principalities, and you have to be able to discern the difference in these. So I want to roll back the clock a little bit in Paul's journey to the time when he was traveling um, through the, what, the area that we now know as Turkey, and um, he, um, he was coming up through here, and he goes to, to Troas. But all the way he travels through here, the Holy Spirit is prompting him where to go, not to go to Bithynia, not to go to Mysia. I want to read the text to you, because I think it's a, a really good um, juxtaposition on the fact that Satan was blocking Paul, but here is the Holy Spirit leading Paul. So Paul and his companions traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Okay, so there's a positive thing there, but he's still not allowed to preach. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So let's just see that again. Here's Macedonia over here, over the ocean. Paul has a vision of a Macedonian man pleading with him to come over. Paul's here in Troas. The Holy Spirit's already told him not to go to Bithynia or into this area of Mysia, so he comes down here into Troas. And it's here that he has the vision, gets in the boat, ends up at Philippi and starts a church over there. So in both cases, uh, where Paul is instructed not to do something, it's the Holy Spirit. See in the second line there, it says, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Something positive happened. God has led him. 
And we can really only assume what it is that's happening here, or presume, I should say, but it'll be something to do with, with prayer, or something to do with prophecy, something to do with a collective group, I suspect, where people together just felt this urgency not, the urgency not to go. And that takes a great deal of maturity, and it takes a great deal of wisdom, but God will always make his will known to you if you give him time to discern that. And if you do it with others, that's even better because, you know, in this situation, many minds seeking the Lord will give you a, a greater clarity. But further on, Paul says so uh, in verse 8, um, so they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas, and during the night, Paul had a vision. So a vision or a dream, um, either one works, works for me. But um, Paul has this really strong vision that he has to go into Macedonia. So there's a big difference here between what Paul's experiencing and how it is that he describes um, Satan blocked our way to come back into the Thessalonian church to spend time with them. Now, when Paul was kicked out of Philippi, that's the city before he got to Thessalonica, uh, what happened was uh, one of the men who become Christians by the name of Jason was hauled in by the, by the officials of the city and he was made to post bond, in other words, pay some money to ensure that Paul didn't come back again. Okay? So there, what, what's happening is the local authorities, the local principalities and powers are working together to stop Paul from coming back into that city. And so we would assume that when Paul is saying that uh, Satan has blocked our way, what he'll be finding is that when he's making attempts or inquiries to go back into those cities, he'll be finding that the, the city officials, uh, probably the synagogues, the religious folks of the day who had the authority by numbers, uh, were working together to keep Paul away from Thessalonica or away from, um, from Philippi, as was the case. And so here we can see the difference between how powers and principalities work and, um, and often is the case with missionaries who go out overseas. I know they've seen this with the Baptist missionaries and other, other folks that we know. They will have their visa cancelled. Okay? It's a nice, uh, politically correct way to do it. And, um, and that, that gives people legitimacy. But what it is, it's all about a deeper power and principality working to stop the gospel being preached. Does that make sense? Yeah, and so Paul was facing this at a very raw but political level. And so Paul wasn't disappointed by this, but he navigated his way through it in a different way. And writing the letters, at the time when Paul wrote the letters to the Thessalonians, might have seemed like a really compromised way to communicate with the church in Thessalonica. But um, 2,000 years later, we're, we're still reading his letters. So that's pretty cool. Eh? He wouldn't have had a clue. Seriously. You think about it. If you write letters to people today and you found that someone was reading them 2,000 years later as divinely inspired scripture, you'd be freaking out, wouldn't you? Yeah, I would be anyway. Yeah. Uh, and Michaela and I, when we, we courted, um, we spent a long time overseas separated from each other. And I've got this big, fat pile of aerograms of letters that we wrote to each other. I'd hate future generations to read them. <laughs> They're so mushy, they'd probably just fall apart. Um, yeah. 
It's kind of nice. But um, one of the things that we need to learn to discern together is whether God is leading or the devil is pushing back on us. And once we work out the difference, we can actually discern what it is that God is doing. I've got an unusual story to tell you now about something that happened in my life probably about 10 or 12 years ago. But it it just sort of offers an insight into how God works in our lives in in very normal circumstances. Um, A friend of mine, James, invited me to go on a hunting trip down Taihapi. And and for me, spontaneous response to a weekend away takes about three months planning. So with all the planning in place, we drove away about lunchtime, got down to Taihapi, turned left into the Gentle Annies, and went towards a, a hut called the Comet Hut parked our car there, and then we started um, going down this rather big bluff. Now, the goal for us was to get onto a river called the Aquatea River and circle around the back of a, a big station, a big deer farm sheep station. And I said to James on the way down, I said, are we allowed to go on the back of the station? And he goes, oh, yeah, as long as you don't get caught, you're allowed to. And I was like, oh, thanks, James. And uh, what we were doing was heading into a whole lot of Department of Conservation land where we're all, it's all fine, you just get a permit to hunt there. And um, he said to me, look, if we stick on the river, the river is public land, so we're fine. So that's all good. Um, so we torched our way down this bluff, and then we're walking, and it's about a six-hour walk, roughly, to where we were going, and we knew we'd be in around about uh, one o'clock in the morning. Well, what happens is about 11 o'clock, we stop for a break. And um, and so for a break, pulled out the muesli bars and just sitting there, moonlight, beautiful night. And uh, I just had this overwhelming feeling that we shouldn't be there. And I said to James, James, we shouldn't be here. And he goes, oh, what do you think? Should we go on the other side of the river? And I said, no, no, we shouldn't be here at all. We need to go home. (laughs) He's like, oh, okay. And uh, I said, no, seriously, you go and pray about it and see what, you feel about this. So he wanders off into the darkness in this paddock. And about five minutes later, he comes back and he's quite emotional. He's tears in his eyes. And I didn't know whether he was crying about wanting to go back or, or whether God had spoken to him. But he agreed. He said, yeah, I'm with you. Let's, let's go home. So with that, we turned around, walked the three hours back to this big bluff, had to torch our way up this big bluff. It took us nearly two hours to get up. And uh, right about three in the morning, we're back on the road. And we finally pull up back home early in the morning. And we didn't know what to expect. We were waiting to hear as we walked into home that somebody had passed away, you know, there'd been a tragedy or something like that. And, uh, and yet there was, there was nothing. Um, so we just looked at each other and thought, that's weird. Let's just leave it at that. Well, two nights later, I was watching the, the Paul Holmes show. Some of you remember the Paul Holmes show, those of you who've been around a while. Seven o'clock, and I saw the advert for it. And he said, Tonight we're going down to Turangi. We've had reporters down there over the weekend catching hunters who have been going and poaching on the back of farm stations down the back of uh, Turangi uh, and uh, Taihapi. Taihapi. And I was like, Wow. So I ring up James. I said, James, better watch TV. We might be on it. (laughs) I said, And if we're on it, that's not good news. Anyway, um, long story short, the farmer had been really frustrated by people accessing the Department of Conservation land by using the back of his farm in the way that James was going to take me. And uh, they'd actually caught some people on film, a couple of policemen. One of them lost his job as a result of it. 
but they had the TV camera crews there and a whole lot of trail cams and a whole lot of Department of Conservation workers, all policing the area only half an hour away from where we would have been if we'd carried on walking. And it's just one of those times when you just go, well, praise God, really. You know, and, and it, you know, it's a strange thing to say because it sounds like I was a criminal and God stopped me going to jail. It wasn't quite that bad, but um, innocently we would have been in a place where we shouldn't have been. And God turned us around and sent us back. Probably one of the most unusual things I've ever had to do. Because as I say, three months preparation to go on a hunting trip is not something you just walk away from quickly. But in that moment, you just felt this, I just felt this urgency. A real sense in which if I pushed forward to go another step, I was pushing against something tangible. And it was a real physical thing in my, in my body at the time. And, uh, and I, just, I just stopped and I said, man, we can't go any further. And the only thing I can relate to in Scripture about this experience is, is like when Paul said, we tried to go into this area, but the Holy Spirit pushed us back. We tried to go into another area, but Jesus pushed against us, held us back. And so I just want to encourage you. God speaks to his people. We just got to be tuned in. You know, I'm not that perfect. I'm tuned in all the time, you know. I might get out of bed in the morning and say, Holy Spirit, shall I have wheat bix or toast? <laughs> what are you doing, dear? Just waiting on the Lord. Is it wheat bix or toast? No, it's not like that. It's, it's, it's about having a heart check that's going on in your spirit all the time where you go, yeah, you know, I'm not sure what it is, but I think I need to, in my business, employ that person. You know, or I, I think I've got a leading that, you know, instead of going overseas for a holiday, we should go and serve over here for a couple of weeks. It's just a leading that you get, that God is leading you gently in ways that uh, only he can do. And so Paul finishes this letter at this point in a really unusual way because uh, he's talked about persecution and, and yet he's really, really proud of the way that these folks have withstood the challenges that have come from their own people, their own neighbours, their own city officials, their own elders within the synagogues. And he stops and he says this, for what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes, is it not you? Is it not you? Paul says, this is why I love you like a mother. This is why I love you like a father. This is why I'm pursuing you to be with you. This is why I'm writing you this letter to comfort you. Because at the end of the day, everything that counts is about you coming to know Christ. And everything that counts in my life now is about you coming to know Christ and maturing in the faith, withstanding the persecution, withstanding the pushback that comes from being a follower of Jesus. And I glory in the fact that you have grown and are growing to maturity, that you might withstand this challenge to become a fully mature believer in Jesus. We all face persecution at some level or another. You know, some of us are domiciled, you know, the white sheep of the family, the holy roller, the God-botherer, you know, the churchy. And, uh, and these can be subtle, but they can also be painful. Uh, you can know rejection through, through things that you do in your business or things that you do in work or things that you do socially. 
But God sees that and he knows that. And he says to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Don't deny me. Because thousands and millions of people have gone before you who have suffered exactly the same thing to the glory of God. So for now, I'd like us to stand and I'd like to lead us in a prayer for the persecuted church in China. Will you do that with me? Yeah. Let's pray. Father, we agree together today that our brothers and sisters in China, Lord, who are seemingly facing a really, really difficult challenge at the moment, we agree that they need more and more of your spirit. We agree that they need more and more of your love poured into them, that they may face this intimidation with an overwhelming sense of of love and forgiveness in the face of persecution. Lord, we know that we are told we should bless those who curse us. I I pray for the church that they will be in a position to do that. Lord, give them grace. Give them wisdom. Give them the ability to persevere under struggle. Give them the understanding of what your Spirit is saying to them, that they may avoid detection where is needed. And where they have been put under pressure, may they be able to withstand the, the persecution, be whatever it is, physical, emotional, mental. But Lord, build your church, and we know, as you said in your word, that the gates of hell will not prevail. And we agree together, Lord, that your church will prosper even under times of persecution. Lord, we speak in faith because for most of us, we don't understand what this persecution is like. We live in a a world, a, a land that is so free, and yet we stand with our brothers and sisters whom we know are suffering. God, we stand against those powers and principalities. We pray that you bring to frustration, Lord, that secular humanism wrapped up in communism, the the desire that they have to look to, to human philosophies, hollow and shallow human philosophies, that look to a leader for comfort, whereas you are the only one. You are the only one who can bring the, the deepest comfort to eternal life. So God, we thank you for our freedom here. And uh, yet at the same time, we, we stand united with the church around the world. Father, may your grace be sufficient for them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And I talked at the early part of my message about this, this early church, you know, with it represented there by a, a little fawn. Um, you know, one of the ways in which you, you grow up in the Christian faith is that you be baptized. And what we can guarantee is that that early church in Thessalonica, they would have been baptized into the church, baptized into Christ. And, and maybe for some of you here today, God's been talking to you, putting that, uh, that, that subtle pressure of love upon you saying, hey, step into what I have for you. Step into more of me. And uh, God would have you be baptized. If, if that's you, why don't you come and talk to me or Michaela or some of the other uh, team here after the service. And we'd love to talk to you more about being baptized. It's that, that next step of obedience that God wants you to enter into. And uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing to do. It's a beautiful thing for us to witness. Thank you.